Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, I talk to Oscar winner Daniel Kaluuya and Shamak Moore about voicing the Spider-Man in the much-anticipated sequel, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. We hear from director Tina Sater about her new film, Reality, all about the whistleblower reality winner who was jailed for five years for leaking documents about Russian interference in the 2016 US election. Filmmaker Joe Lee on his new film 406 Days, the documentary which chronicles the somewhat forgotten Debenhams workers and their fight for recompense. Plus, Chris Wasser reviews The Bogeyman and an all-dancing Paul Meskel in Carmen. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. Now, as you heard there from the little menu, we have a very busy show this week, so I'm going to have to kind of dispense with you know the normal stuff i talked about the start of the show about mostly tv and what's been happening in the world of tv so i don't have time for that this week but i have to mention two things very quickly a lot of people were in touch with me about last sunday's football match when everton stayed in the premier league by beating who was it again bournemouth one nil and uh I got a lot of people congratulating me, even though I had very little to do with it, but uh, it was great. But it was also deeply unpleasant. I mean, I've said it to you before that State of Everton Football Club, watching them, it's kind of like waiting for your car to be NCT'd or something. It's just not pleasant. So it's great we're up again, but let's all move on. But thank you for all the people who got in touch about Everton. And I realize this is a film show, so why are we talking about that? But look, Take me as I am. And then just quickly in TV, Succession ended. And I have to say, I thought it was a deeply satisfying final episode. It all came as it should have come, if you know what I mean. So I was happy with it. You know what? It's four seasons. They're ending it at the right time. This was a show about Succession. Who was going to succeed Logan Roy? We got answers. I don't think we need any more. I don't think we need to spend time in these people's company very entertaining people, but kind of rotten people or deeply damaged people. So it's good. It's ended. It was a great TV show. And if you're listening to this show for the first time, you should watch Succession if you never have before. Now, let's talk Spider-Man. My name is Miles Morales. I'm Brooklyn's one and only Spider-Man. And things are going great. Oh, yeah. You were supposed to be her five. All right, whatever. Whatever? Wow. Whatever? So are you like a cow or a Dalmatian? I am the spot. <laughs> it's not funny. Don't, don't do that. Miles' grades are pretty good. A in AP Physics. That's my little man. And a B in Spanish. What? Ooh, okay. Miles. Are you trying Mira, to that's why I'm possible. I gotta go. All right, everybody. He's lying to you. And I think you know it. Now, that was a clip from Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, the sequel to the highly successful, incredibly successful Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which 
grossed over $400 million back in 2018 and also won Best Animated Feature at that year's Oscars. And rightly so, because even if you have superhero fatigue, uh, Into the Spider-Verse, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was a great film because the animation was so cool. It was kind of comic booky, yet it was CGI and the story was different. If you don't know, a young man called Miles Morales, who is African-American and Puerto Rican in heritage, and he gets bitten by the radioactive spider and becomes a young masked Spider-Man and takes it in a whole different place. It was a funky kind of animated movie that had lots of jokes for the adults. It is back with the much anticipated sequel, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. There's going to be a third one called Beyond the Spider-Verse. And it's very good. The action heats up in that Miles' character of Spider-Man kind of goes into a multiverse place where he encounters all these other Spider-Men and indeed Spider-Women in multiple and parallel universes and all sorts of strange superhero shenanigans goes on. It's very funny. Uh, it's very adult at times, but also your children will adore it. And my 10-year-old was bemoaning the fact that I wouldn't take him. And uh, it's on release this Friday, the 3rd of June. If you like the first one, I think you'll like this equally as much. Now, the great, and I say that because he's one of the hottest actors around, Daniel Kaluuya, who won an Oscar two years ago for Judas and the Black Messiah when he played Fred Hampton and was also in Jordan Peele's Get Out. Nope. He was in Skins. He is a great actor. He plays one of these different spider people that the young Miles Spider-Man encounters. He's a Spider-Man that's loosely called a punk Spider-Man or punk Spider-Man. And he's this kind of 70s, 80s vibe. He's got a head like Johnny Rotten. He has a guitar. Very cool. And I got to talk to the great Daniel Kaluuya about Spider-Man and a bit more besides. I interviewed Jeffrey Wright, the great American actor for The Batman last year. And he said to me, you know, people don't think that I'm into Batman because they see me as this kind of serious actor. But I loved Batman as a kid, you know. And I, I, I think there might be something similar with you. People see you as this Oscar winner who's been in these Jordan Peele movies and things like that. But you're a massive Spider-Man fan, is my understanding, going back to a kid. Is that right? I used to watch that. Right, we used to have this show with Live and Kicking. I don't know if it was before Live and Kicking or, or or during it. I used to watch Spider Man every Saturday morning. Like I used to love Spider Man. <clears throat> um, and then when I've watched every iteration of the Spider Man films when they became live action, so I've kept in the loop. Do you know what I mean? And so it's a genuine. Mm. Thing. I've been I like I've just been working nonstop. But and then the, in, into the Spider Verse, I was just obsessed with. Yeah, so, there's something about the archetype that speaks to me. I mean, and, like, <clears> I just lo I, I love it. Like it's like, and also I do think this is an incredible. Like Into the Spider Verse is an incredible piece of art. Like I don't think just because it's commercial doesn't mean it's in it's incredibly artistic. Do you mean it's an incredible, mm. incredible artistic feat? Is art? Yeah. So I, yeah. I don't I don't separate commerciality and art. Okay. Okay. Leonard Cohen said you can't. So there you go. Uh, tell me this, your, your character, like he arrives and within about a minute, he says something like, if I've gotten this correctly, self-mythologizing autocrat, which is, which is great. And like my 10 year old was bummed that he couldn't come with me to see this because I was at a press show. And yet I was getting laughs from it as well. Like adult kind of laughs. Is that maybe the sweet spot as well for you as an actor, like to be able to make a, you know, a piece of art or a piece of commerciality that appeals to kids and it appeals to some aging film critic like me as well. 
you know, man, you ain't aging, man. You're all right. But, um, but <laughs> thank like, you, thank you. But like, I like, uh, yeah, that's that's the joy. That's the. I mean, it's one of the hardest things to do. I mean, mm. it's like for all ages. Do you know I mean everyone sits mm. down and they get a different thing from it, and then also ten years later, you watch it again, you get a different thing from it again. Mm. I watched Ferris Bueller's Day Off again the other day. Oh yeah, something completely different from it than I did a decade ago. Do you know I mean and that, and that's yeah. what I love about film. And yeah. like that's what I aspire for in the films I do, and I do want, like I do, I think like the like kids films that are like positioned for children in this modern age, I think are incredible films mm, and it's incredible yeah. storytelling. So and it's just like like I love the Lego Movie, like I love that. Yeah, film. Do you know what I mean, and it's like, and I resisted that for a, a while, but <laughs> like, um, but it's an incredible piece of work. Do you know what I mean? And so it's like kind of. I think that's the that's the sweet. So Shrek has that element about it. Toy mm. Story has that element about it. Like mm. so, that's always been my aspiration. Are you channeling anyone? Like obviously, I thought of Johnny Rotten. I was maybe thinking of people from The Clash. Yeah. A touch of Iggy Pop. I don't know. Was there someone in your mind as this seventies, eighties punk? Nah, you know, nah. It wasn't. It wasn't that. But I'm from Camden, so yeah, I know. Like yeah. it was. It was very like. It, I, Camden is a very unique place <laughs> and like onto itself. If you're from there, it's very, it's got a very uh, different mindset. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you're exposed to so much. Like you're like a kid, like eight years old. Plenty like, of Irish people in Camden as well. Yeah, loads of Irish people. Like a kid, eight, eight, eight years old and there's people with black purple hair, spikes and spikes everywhere and no one bats an eyelid. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like that. It's just being around that. That's an energy. That's a vibe. And that's what I wanted to bring to it. Like a kind of like, uh, we do what we want, like whatever. Like Yeah. Well, you certainly brought that and you did it very well. In closing, because I have to wrap now, I'm an Everton fan, yeah. so I think it's okay. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yes. Well, you see, I was going to say, everyone who was a neutral, who wasn't an Arsenal fan or an Everton fan, they wanted two things. They wanted Everton to stay up and they wanted Arsenal to win the Premiership, I think. So my condolences on that, all right? It's all right. It's all right. I mean, there's, there's always next year, allegedly. There is. <laughs> so I keep hearing. Lovely yeah. to talk to you. And the Lovely movie's to great. Take care, man. Daniel Kalua there talking about uh, Arsenal Football Club. I had to, I had to. He's a massive Arsenal fan. See, Everton's never far away. But he was ostensibly talking to me about Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse, which is on general release this weekend. He also said I didn't look aging. It's always nice to hear, you know, especially when you get to my age. It's all you worry about. Do I look like I'm getting older? Anyway, now, the centre of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse and indeed the first film uh, Into the Spider-Verse is Miles, the young character of Miles who plays Spider-Man, Miles Morales. And in this movie and in the previous one, he was played by Shamik Moore, who's an actor and indeed a musician. And he was in a great series uh, all about the Wu-Tang Clan. He has played Miles, as I say, in all two movies and will be in the third one. And I got to talk to him about Spider-Man. I was thinking... And you know better than anyone, but is the reason why we love Miles because he's bumbling and he's not getting it all right? He's getting a lot of it wrong. Like maybe in a way that's the best kind of superhero. What's what's your take on that? I think Miles is just the kind of person that you you wouldn't mind your son being on a basketball team with Miles or, mm. or your nephew or or you know maybe your daughter's in like a math group and miles is in it it's like it's like he's a nice kid you know mm. he's a relatable kid he's not menacing he's 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 lovable 
you know he is uh, he'll he'll definitely grow on you uh, yeah and i think that's at the core of this thing um he he is learning and he gets to learn from peter parker originally right in the first yeah. film i think the fact that they didn't make peter parker black was a huge like reason we can accept miles as as a spider-man friend like to be a part of the spider-man franchise yeah. for all you know uh inclusivity means everyone not just you know now a, a black latino spider-man it's just like okay we're adding on to it so I, th I feel like that was a huge part of it and even in across the spider-verse now you see it's still much bigger than miles you know mm -hmm. it's much 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 bigger than miles it's bigger than peter it's bigger than gwen um the story of, of the spider-verse is now there's so many possibilities. Uh, you even have punks from London in it now. So. That's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. right. So it's. Uh, I think that's why we like this film, and I think that's why we like Miles. Yes, indeed. Tell me this. I, I'm always curious when an actor, which you are, is doing, you know, I don't want to call it a cartoon, an animated movie. Do you find you have to do more or less takes? Because I've never done it, but voicing someone other than yourself like when you look at it, i know it might be a strange question but do you is it easier or harder i guess i know it's very different but in terms of the takes do you spend longer doing it yeah it's much longer doing it when you uh when you really think about it it's 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 uh i might say the, the same line for two years you know uh and i don't really know okay. what it is that i don't know why <laughs> we're saying it this long but we are you know so it's it's uh, it's a much longer process. If you're filming a movie or a TV show, you'll be done in six to eight months, mm. eight months longest, right? So yeah. Uh, again, this is a four-year process. So yeah, it's um, it is what it is, man. You know, it's it's definitely different, but that is a fair point. I would say that's one of the things that makes uh the voice act inside maybe a bit more challenging in some mm. way. Yeah. So you've been living with Miles a long time. Then, you know, yeah. this yeah, guy's absolutely. in your head. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You you mentioned TV uh, in six or seven days time from now in Dublin, where I'm talking to you from the Wu-Tang Clan are playing a big arena show. Uh, and I really enjoyed you. I watched uh, all episodes of Wu-Tang and American Saga. I'm wondering and that that period in, in hip hop was fascinating to me because of the age I am. Do you feel maybe they didn't get the 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 love they deserved in terms of the story of where rap and hip hop came from? There's two two answers to that. Um, I think Wu Tang is forever. I think um, I think they're huge. They're playing in Dublin in a couple of weeks, like you just said. This like I, that's insane for those guys. A group of felons from from yeah. New York. From Staten Island, New York, playing in Dublin, what, like 30 years later? This, yeah. That's, um, I think they got the recognition they was trying to. Okay, okay. Fair enough. Their, their limitations, I think, are based on th their own members, you know, which is where the show comes in um, yeah. and kind of like, you know, reveals those things. It's just the inner workings of eight people in a group, <laughs> you know, so... Yeah. yeah, yeah, fair enough. Well, listen, I should end with Spider-Man. It's it's fantastic. Uh, are you looking forward to then another four years for the next movie? Is this going to be your life for the foreseeable future then? Because there's another one in the pipeline. I don't know how long or, you know, I don't 
I can't really get into the next movies. I know about okay. this one. Um, <laughs> okay. The Earth is out today. Yes. Um, I for, for sure absolutely expect Miles Morales to be a part of uh, my story until I'm gone. So. Okay. Wonderful. Well, lovely to talk to you. Thanks a million. Thank you. Same. Shamik Moore there talking to me about his role in Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And as I say, those movies, even if you have Spider-Man and superhero fatigue, these movies are very, very cool. And I think you'll enjoy them because they uh, have just delightful animation in them. It's it's comic booky, yet it's very modern. It, it's just wonderful. It's hard to describe. Go and see it because it is in cinemas, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse from Friday the 3rd of June. Up next, Stephen King's The Bogeyman and the return, not that he ever went away, of Paul Meskel. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. We turn to some of the other week's new releases. Chief among them are a Stephen King-inspired horror movie called The Bogeyman. Poor title, I think it's fair to say. And the latest Paul Meskel vehicle of sorts called Carmen, which is loosely based on the opera of the same name. More of that to follow. To make sense of all these confounding things is arts journalist and film critic Chris Wasser. Chris, hello. John, how are you? Very good. The Bogeyman. Sorry, I said it's a bad title, but it's just, it seems generic. It's like calling the movie Santa Claus or something. It, it's a little bit like that. Yeah, it's derivative, as is yes. the, 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 the story itself. But it's actually, it's based on a, a Stephen King short from, you know, back when Stephen King was, you know, primarily a short story writer. I think yeah. even before he had his first novel published. Um, and it's quite a simple story that's actually been adapted into uh, a short film before, also like a, a short theatrical piece. Okay. Um, for that is because it, it actually plays out as you know a man visiting his therapist talking about this boogeyman that 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 may have killed his family um and you're kind of like thinking the whole way through the story is this is this guy you know uh uh delusional you know is he making the whole thing up and it's a very small piece and i think had a filmmaker come along and turned that very small um atmospheric almost claustrophobic horror tale into you know an 80 90 minute feature that could have been quite brave it could have been you know it could have been quite something but instead we have the writers behind uh, the original writers, I should add, behind A Quiet Place, because people think of A Quiet Place, they think of John Krasinski, but yeah. it was actually based on an original story uh, by Brian Woods and Scott Beck. And they have turned Stephen King's story into something a little more convoluted, but that, you know, to be fair, actually starts off well. So we have this story about a therapist, Will Harper, portrayed by Chris Messina, who has recently lost his wife and as a result is in an awful state. And ironically for a therapist, he isn't quite able to, you know, communicate his feelings either to himself or to his daughters, uh, Sawyer and Sadie. So one is, you know, the moody teenager. Another is a little girl who's afraid of the dark. And they're all just getting by, basically. And okay. one day, one day, this disturbed patient wanders into... Um, the therapist's office without an appointment and says that he really needs Dr. Harper's help. And he says, as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, his family, his kids have all been killed by this monster. And of course, the doctor's thinking to himself, I've got a murderer sitting in front of me and this is quite dangerous. Um, and long story short, this man, this, this, this disturbed patient ends up dead inside the doctor's house. And we're thinking that's the end of that. The doctor's like, look, I got away, you know, dodged the bullet. This, you know, something, something terrible has happened there, but my, myself, and my family are okay. They're not. Unfortunately, that disturbed patient has in inadvertently invited this so-called monster into the therapist's house, all hell breaks loose. 
Okay, okay. So a slight enough story, although when you describe it there, there is a lot going yeah. on. So you've so you've two people in essence grieving, one of them definitely because he lost his wife and the other one claiming that his children are dead. So is this the kind of theme of, you know, horror as therapy in a way? It is, it is. And we're seeing this quite a lot at the mm. minute, actually. And I think we only had... We only had small. Was was Smile released last year? Was it released earlier this year? Um, either either way, that was the, the the Paramount comedy about you know the again based on a very short story about a you know a patient wandering into a therapist's office and saying something is happening and you're wondering whether or not to yeah. believe it. And th- and then when you see you know the 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 monster in the corner, you think, well, I should have just believed it. Um, yeah, I mean that's 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 basically the setup here. But as you as you, as you mentioned there, it it is. We're working at the beginning with a very simple tale, but Rob Savage, the director, uh, uh, Brian Woods, Scott Beck, they've turned it into something very complicated, and the film struggles to shake that off. So at the beginning, when it's all about the therapist, when it's all about, you know, these kids and this father grieving their mother, but also, you know, kind of living in this house that, that despite the fact that there's three of them in it, you know, feels quite spooky, feels a little bit haunted. It's very good at setting up this dread-inducing tone. You know, right. it had me for the first 20 minutes. The performances were quite grounded. I liked the idea of a patient wandering in off the street and telling this therapist who's going through an awful lot himself all of this spooky business. You know, this, this, this all worked really well. Once we get to the idea of a monster potentially being in the house, it all begins to fall apart because it starts to explain who that monster is or what that monster is, where it might have come from. The teenager starts investigating the monster's previous whereabouts. It's that kind of thing, John, where if you start, you know, giving the, you know, the boogeyman, and in this case, it is literally the boogeyman. If you start yeah. giving the boogeyman an address, you know, a, 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 a PPS number, all, everything basically, if you explain too much, it stops being scary. And unfortunately, yeah. it also explains too much to the point where it stops making sense. I think this film's logic is a little bit all over the place. I mean, these are not the things that you should be thinking about when you're watching a horror film. But I kept yeah. thinking to myself, hold on, if the monster was in that other person's house, and then they're, they've been invited into this house. And how come they can also be in the school? And how come they can also be in a different office? You know, I, if, if, yeah. you're, if you're thinking about those things, John, something's gone wrong. Yeah. And I mean, horror, you know, it's horror. So there's a fantastical element to it, but it has to obey its own logical rules as well. Absolutely. You know, yeah. yeah. So you, you, I was going to say to you, so is it scary? But you've already answered that. It, it runs out of scares then uh, halfway through or earlier even. It does. It's very good at the beginning with this idea, as I said, that one the, the little girl in the family, Sawyer, she's afraid of the dark. And of course, she's going to be staring under the bed before she goes to sleep. Of course, she's going to be staring at the closet across the room. And we've seen that thing done, you know, a thousand and one times before. But to be fair to Rob Savage, the director who uh, previously made Host, uh, also Dashcam, which wasn't quite well, well received. Um, he, he Host he was is- remarkably well received, though, wasn't it? Host was well received. Yes, that's yeah. the one that was uh, that was that was set over Zoom. That was yeah. actually wasn't it inspired by that that horrible but quite effective prank that he played on his friends during? Yeah, um, but that was because yeah. f- f- I remember at the time thinking oh, a movie about Zoom when we were all living our lives on Zoom, but it was strangely affecting as a movie. But anyway, we digress. Yeah, host was pretty good. Dashcam, not so much. This yeah. is actually the first time that Rob Savage is working with a major budget. And I should also say that the original plan for the Boogeyman was for it to be released on a streaming service. So we would have actually, I think it would have gone straight to Hulu, which means we would have had it on Disney+. Plus. Yeah. But apparently they did test screenings, and one of those test screenings actually had Stephen King there. Right. And he was so impressed by it, everyone else was, that, 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 that the decision was made to move it into cinemas. So I'm, I'm wondering, 
what film were they watching? Okay, okay. <laughs> um, because although it is scary to begin with, there's there's a whole hour there where it's just jump scares and it's just, you know, a teenager uh, uh, basically trying to find out about this monster and talking about it a little bit too much. It's all stuff that we've seen before and it just, it lost me. It also yeah. lost me in terms of like, we start with the therapist and Chris Messina is very, very good in this role. And then we go to the teenager and then he's gone for a while. And then we go to the little kid and then the two of them are gone for a little while. And it's just it's kind of, you know, pick a lane, focus on, yeah. on one or two characters and, and just, just, just try to keep it simple. Unfortunately, it just gets a little bit too complicated. So what are you going to say stars wise for the bogeyman? I think we'll see, you know, worse horrors this year, especially coming up to around October when we get that um, Exorcist remake, which I won't talk about. Uh, yes. But uh, I think we're going to see worse this year. But I was I was quite looking forward to this. So I don't know if I'll be as disappointed in other horrors the same way I was with this one. So it's, it's two stars, I'm afraid. Okay, two stars. Let's take a quick clip of the bogeyman. They called it the boogeyman. Yeah, that's the way I used to look at them. Like they were crazy. Found out the hard way I was wrong. I said, play with its food, scare them to death. Shit, I can even talk like them. Like a goddamn echo. needs the dark to stay hidden. Fire was the first thing man used to see at night. It's really been around that long. I think it's been around forever. That was The Bogeyman, which is on general release from this Friday, which is the 2nd of June. Chris Wasser gave it two stars. Now, I hadn't seen The Bogeyman. However, I have seen Carmen, uh, a strange, unusual film that really took me by surprise. This is Paul Meskel and... Uh, very unusual for his next project, I thought, but but maybe not. Tell us what's going on in Carmen, Chris. Well, it's based on the Georges Bizet 1875 opera, but I should actually rephrase that. It's more inspired by the opera, and it's yeah. actually inspired by uh, you know the literary piece that came beforehand, and also other little pieces of poetry. It's not. It's basically, you know, the story by name, a little bit of music in there and a similar sort of setup in that we're dealing with, you know, star-crossed lovers. But it's a contemporary setting. Paul Mescal is this chap named Aiden. He is this troubled, tortured ex-Marine who's clearly traumatized by his experience in Afghanistan, but, you know, uh, won't won't talk about it. He's living in Texas. And, and if and I'm has- not mistaken, is suggesting he may return again. Uh, yeah, at one point, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so, and he's living in Texas, and you know his family are trying to say are, are saying to him, you know, look, there's a job there if you want it. And it turns out that job that he doesn't want is working on this dodgy border midnight security crew. You know, working essentially alongside these racists who are essentially hunting uh, Mexican immigrants in the dead of night. Um, and he clearly doesn't want to do this, but in doing it, he crosses paths with a young Mexican woman named Carmen, uh, played by Melissa Barrera, who we would have actually seen in, in Scream 6 quite recently. Yes, I um, meant to say, sorry, Melissa Barrera is in it because she's one of the best things in it. Sorry, it's not just a Paul Mescal movie. 
No, absolutely not. No, it's very much Carmen's tale, and as a result, it's very much Melissa's tale. Um, and you know, uh, uh, Carmen is in a, a, a different sort of situation. You know, she's like Aiden, and that things haven't quite worked out the way that you know that that she hoped. But uh, there's a tragic story there where she's actually you know fleeing her home. Her mother was actually murdered by a a, a, a drug cartel, and she's hoping to make it across the border and to start over in Los Angeles. And because Aiden has taken this job on this dodgy security crew, their paths cross, and I won't give away what actually happens but let's just say that their initial encounter it it doesn't go according to plan it's quite eventful a couple of things happen that shouldn't happen and both of our leads end up on the run together and they head towards los angeles and of course john they fall in love along the way indeed they do now that to me sounds like a decent movie kind of like a a, a, not a road trip but a road movie uh where they're fleeing themselves but also people who are possibly after them but what i found very incongruous about it was they're also trying to do this and i might sound like a philistine but a kind of musical uh with very artistic flourishes where it kind of almost attempts to be a contemporary opera at times it does yeah you know what it reminded me of Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, to an extent, yeah. Which maybe, you know, some listeners will think, well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't think it's a good thing either. Um, You know, you've got got this mishmash of, of tones and themes that, you know, results in a film that rarely ever comes together i think you know you have at at times it's almost like a musical i mean paul mescal is performing a number here you know not to a bunch of people who just stop what they're doing and then you know kind of listen to this man sing and then afterwards don't ask why was that man singing um it's more just like he goes off by himself to perform a musical number and then we're back to the drama and then we also have carmen dancing and then we'll come back to the drama so it's yeah. a bit of a musical a contemporary one a bit of an you know an avant-garde uh, a dance piece a bit of a you know romantic melodrama and the other thing that i you know, i don't know how you feel about this but this is the fourth thing i can remember seeing paul mescal in right so we've normal people we've after sun uh god's creatures recently which i interviewed him for and now this like with God's Creatures was a bit different, but he's doing a lot of, you know, emotionally incontinent or repressed men. You know, I kind of had this feeling of it's Paul Mescal being kind of laconic again, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think... I think he's a little bit uncomfortable with this role and maybe not mm. the role, but maybe what's, what's required of him. You know, I think this would be an easier film to enjoy for both the viewer. And I'd say some of the performers from the looks of things, if it knew what it was doing. And there are times where you can sense almost that Paul Mescal is a little bit unsure about what's required because in the dance pieces, it's very easy to, you know, but it's not, it's, it's, it's not easy to dance, but it would be simpler for a director. And the director of this piece is actually a dancer and choreographer named Benjamin Millipide whose entire career has been in you know ballet and dance and this mm-hmm. is his, his his directorial debut so he can clearly direct the hell out of the dance sequences and he can clearly you know communicate with his actors and tell them what's required of them and paul mescal has clearly gone off and put in the work and as a result has some fabulous moves in this mm, film and you know true. not not a flaw in the dance department between melissa barrera and paul mescal in the performance department however it's a different story and it's almost as though it's almost as though you can see him thinking a little bit too much about, you know, should mm. I go heavy on the drama here? What should I do with this dialogue? Because the dialogue at times is is a little bit too uh, soapy, I thought. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and you you know you are getting a sense too that he needs to do something a little bit different. The yeah. the, the the sad male part, you know, he's, yes. he's so good at, but yeah. I kind of just want to see him. 
you know, try something new, to exercise some new uh, uh, dramatic muscles. And, I completely and this, agree with you. Like a comedy or even a superhero movie or something just to get him out of that space. Yeah, it's kind of disappointing, isn't it, to say that because yeah. he was so good in After Sun. But I'm thinking to myself, yeah. okay, okay, it's time for it's time for Paul Mescal to try something. Melissa Barrera, on the other on the other hand, is terrific in this, and she yes. is quite she is quite comfortable with the level of kind of you know uh, uh, high high octane like melodrama that, that 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 we see in this. She is quite good at that, um, and there are some good, good some good supporting performances in here. Unfortunately, the whole thing, as I said, just never really comes together. It's quite fractured. It's quite frustrating. A little bit confused and confused. Using. Uh, yeah. and, and just I thought it, it's better suited to a stage. If I saw this on the stage, I would think, okay, that was quite effective. That was quite powerful. In terms of, you know, when you when you shine that cinematic lens on it, it doesn't really it doesn't really work, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And it, I, I hate to say it, but a slight hint of pretentiousness, to be honest, as well, if I if I'm being completely honest about it. So look, I think we're in pretty solid agreement on that. What would you say stars wise for Carmen? I look, I admired it. I admired it for, you know, its experimental nature, for getting yeah. that cast, for the level of work that's gone into choreographing it and just trying to do something with a, with a story that's been told so many times before. Mm. I just think it's, a, unfortunately, a bit of a failed experiment. So it's two stars, unfortunately. Yeah, I would give it two and a half because in a way, I agree with what you're saying. Like you have to admire the ambition of it, but it just doesn't come off. So that is two and a half stars from me, but more importantly, from Chris Wasser for Carmen, which is in select cinemas also from this Friday, the 2nd of June. Chris, thanks a million. Thanks, John. Now, also released this week is an intriguing film called Reality, which at its centre has the real-life reality winner played by Sidney Sweeney, who spent five years in prison for leaking a document that appeared to corroborate accusations of Russian interference in the 2016 US election. Reality winner was a contractor for the National Security Agency working as a translator. The film is absolutely intriguing in that it takes, al- it takes place almost entirely in her modest house in Augusta, Georgia, on the afternoon, on one particular afternoon, when FBI agents come to her house to search the property and it turns out interrogate her. The dialogue is taken from real world FBI transcripts. It was directed by Tina Sater and was adapted from her own play called This Is A Room. As I say, it is a mesmerizing piece of cinema, not like anything I've seen very recently. And I'm delighted to say Tina joins me now. Hi, Tina. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Tell me this, you know, I was really taken by how ordinary the story appears on one level. This girl, woman, comes home. She may have been at yoga or something like that, and she's going to go about her business. And then these men, with a vague threatening vibe, but also occasionally friendly, start to talk to her about her dog but also are going to rifle through her belongings. So it was mundane, but also incredibly surreal. Uh, Is that how you saw it? Is that the gateway into it for you? That really was the gateway, that how sort of there's a sunny Saturday afternoon, this really young woman in, you know, jean shorts, Converse high tops, hair in a top knot, is just like literally having a Saturday afternoon and suddenly she's being, you know, questioned about things with like international geopolitical stakes, but also then sometimes talking about her dog and cat and like where she works out. So Mm. all that like simmering stew of this transcript was like sort of irresistible to me. And, you know, I mentioned this was based on a play and 
you know, sometimes when people say to you, it all takes place in one location, I, I kind of lo lose the will to live because, you know, I've seen plays done on film and, and sometimes they're amazing, like Fences or something like that, but sometimes they're just awful and they should remain plays. So I was hesitant going into this. Now, thankfully, the way it's all put together, there is no fear of that. And as I mentioned, it's intriguing and mesmerizing. But had you any reservations about doing it this way? I didn't. I mean, I, I think the constraint of it may be in a, like a bit of a naivete, but just was what was so exciting. You know what I mean? I was like, if we can bring this to life and the fact that I felt like it was going to become this like capsule character study, right? Because because they question her at her own home and go inside that home. There's this amazing vulnerability of like the state at work inside someone's house, like inside a bedroom, inside a home. She had no idea anyone was going to see that day, let alone the FBI. Yeah. So you just get all that incredible ephemera of hers through her eyes, through their eyes, like, you know, her marked up Quran next to like her anime sketchings of like a teenage girl. Like that's all in that place. So I, that also, but keeping it there, I felt like we got to get biographical details in such a specific way. Mm. Let me ask you two obvious questions and forgive me if you've been asked these in every interview you've done. But firstly, did you guys reach out and talk to reality much or at all for this? Yes, I was in touch with reality throughout that prep and making of the film. Yes, because she at that point she was out of prison, so I could be in touch more readily with her. Before she was out of prison, I was working in the play. I was in touch um, with her mom and sister who were then in touch with her. Okay. And is she happy with what she's seen now that it's out in the world? Well, it's, you know, reality has actually not seen the movie. It is too traumatic for her to relive it. But she's a huge um, proponent of the movie because she feels, you know, her mom and sister have seen several cuts of it. They were with us when it premiered in Berlin. And people have reached out to her. You know, it's already been in the world yeah. a little bit before it opens here in the UK and Ireland. And the response she's already gotten from to people directly makes her feel like it's been really meaningful for people to see her and her own words on a day where she feels ultimately it was spun a certain way by the US government when they prosecuted her and then by the media. And so people really get to see her literally in her own words and the other thing that's important to her is she feels like many people go through these kinds of arrests every single day in the United States and it's just like people to understand what that can be like she thinks is really important for people to understand mm. And tell me this then, and I'm going to ask this objectively and neutrally, despite whatever opinions I might have on it. So here is a lady who uh, releases and puts into the world a classified document. So that's illegal, yet she is bringing to light something which is also illegal and pretty heinous, the idea that an election was interfered with. And what she's releasing appears to corroborate that. How do you and how do you want people to see her? Well, I think is she the hero of the piece? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, I think like in a, in an everyday way, 
reality is the hero of this because that's what we're watching is like a, a real person, a normal person who held the fascinating dichotomies that any person holds, but also reality winner in 2017 happened to hold particular dichotomies that really could stick out to like the average American or maybe somewhere anywhere. Like she's a former, at 25, she's already an Air Force veteran who's been honorably discharged. Mm. She's a gun owner who owns three automatic weapons, but she also teaches yoga and is yeah. really into health food and wants to save the environment. So she was this fascinating mix and she's super smart. She speaks Dari, um, Farsi and Pashto. Like, so she was this kind of amazing mix of a human and she's complicated for that. And I think that's what she holds. I don't think there's one simple answer and almost at any turn of this of, over who is she is. She's an unexpected person to be at the heart of a, like a geopolitical interrogation. Um, and then, you know, it's really complicated what how to see what the act she did you know and i think that's to me what makes it really rich and sort of wanting to present it with that real text so people can take in all that information for their own um, sake yeah and then finally i just want to compliment you and i'm sorry i can't remember the actors names off the top of my head but the two main fbi agents are so brilliantly cast because they are these you know, smiling villains, it seems to me, and that they're, they seem so nice and at other times absolutely terrifying because they're wanting to interrogate her and it's a very slow reveal. Did you look long and hard for the two actors who played those FBI agents? Um, you know, so um, Marshawn Davis plays Agent Taylor, the sort of second in command. Yes. And he actually... I had wanted to cast him in that role when my play Is This a Room moved to Broadway and he couldn't do it for timing, but he was so good. And so when I was got, you know, the opportunity to do the film and casting, he leapt to the top of the list again um, for me. So we had him read again and he was super great. And then, yeah, Josh Hamilton was an actor I had known from a couple movies in which he doesn't play anything like Garrick, but I just had a hunch. And then when we first reached out to him, he actually had seen the play in New York. I didn't know that. He's a New York based and often does stage and was really kind of really into it. So that was a really good sign to me. And when we first met up to talk about it, he just, he got all kind of what you just laid out. He's like, what a juicy role. Like these guys are just doing their job, but then they're going to perform this kind of insidious banal chit chat merging into like everything I say is going to like literally ruin your life if you answer it a certain way. So it was, it was just like, you know, a, a casting instinct. And I, yes, I, it's, I'm really pleased to hear you talk about the performances because they both just really nailed that and really deliver something unsettling in those roles. Despite the fact I didn't even take the time to write down their names, my apologies to them and to you. Reality is on release in Ireland from this weekend. That's the 2nd of June. It is based on Tina's play, Is This a Room? I've been talking to its director, Tina Sater. Tina, thanks a million. Thank you. Director Tina Sater there talking about her new movie, Reality. And in case you were confused listening to that, the person in question, the whistleblower, is called Reality Winner. Uh, just in case that was confusing, why did that person keep talking about reality? That's her name, Reality Winner. It's a very unusual movie. And I mean that as a compliment in that it takes place largely in a room where someone is slowly being interrogated. It's a real trip. Fascinating. 
fascinating stuff and reality is in cinemas from this weekend. Another movie that is in cinemas uh, from last weekend is 406 Days, all about the Debenhams workers and the action that they took when they closed. And I'll be talking to the maker of that documentary, Joe Lee, after the break. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks, TV and Movie Show. Now a film that's currently on release is 406 Days, which focuses on the plight of the nearly 1,000 Irish Debenham workers who were made redundant in April 2020 when Debenham's UK Retail Limited shut all 11 stores, including the flagship store on Dublin's Henry Street. The 95% female workforce had been denied an earlier agreed redundancy package and so voted to go on official strike. So they were faced with the prospect of getting absolutely nothing, many of whom had worked there for 10, 20, some people 25 years. The workers remained on the picket line throughout the COVID pandemic for a staggering 406 days, making this the longest industrial dispute in Irish labour history. It finally ended in May 2021 with a compromise of sorts. We might get into that shortly. This documentary, 406 Days, won the best Irish documentary at the Dublin International National Film Festival. It was directed by Joe Lee, who gave us the fabulous Fortune's Wheel a couple of years ago about an unlikely line tamer back in Fairview. And I'm delighted to say Joe joins me now. Hi, Joe. How are you? Hi, John. Thanks very much for having us on. My pleasure. So listen, you know, I, I work in a news radio station, so I'm supposedly aware of all these things. But when I was watching your film last night, you know, I was kind of vague on a lot of this stuff. And I was thinking, was this because there was so much going on in COVID that I'd forgotten large sections of this and when they occupy the building? And I'm wondering, was that maybe one of your reasons in doing this, that you felt maybe these people hadn't gotten their say or hadn't had their moment and that we, because of COVID, kind of forgotten what was at stake yeah very much so really i mean in a way the documentary is me kind of reconstructing what actually happened uh, here with this i got a call from a guy called fergus dowd who'd written a book about it um and he rang me and said well i'd be interested in looking at the book with a view to doing a documentary and i just went out bought the book sat down read it from cover to cover i rang him immediately back kind of within 24 hours and said look i'm really interested in doing this because very much like you describe i only live in merino which is literally a few kilometers from the Mm. city center but i wasn't going into the city center so like you described there I had heard bits and pieces about this on the news, but I hadn't heard the full story. And that was and it was the full story that really interested me and uh, and motivated me to kind of go on and, and reconstruct those 406 days. Yeah, they're brilliantly reconstructed. And, and just to give listeners a sense, there's a lot of interviews with the various women and shop stewards and men. There, there was male mm. workers there as well. And you have wonderful footage of, of empty streets and you, 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 you retell or you tell for people the story of what happened in those days. But one thing that I found fascinating and we were talking before we came on air, we possibly have a fondness for department stores going back to our misspent childhoods. Uh, but when you go in to these empty Debenham stores now and you see the disheveled makeup counters and the concession stands and stuff like that, it's eerie. Were you able to gain access or, or how did that work? Yeah, because 
Yeah, one of the motive, like you know, we're at now only fourteen months really after we began our first filming on this. So you know, for for a film project for a feature documentary, that's that's pretty quick, really, mm. in terms of doing it. And there was a few factors in in that. One, when when I met the people who had been on strike, they were so uh, willing to tell their story, they so wanted to tell their story that it seemed like it was important to get that story down as soon as possible. But another factor that kind of motivated us to move move ahead quickly was was that those stores weren't owned by Debenhams. They were leased by Debenhams. And once the liquidation process had happened and ended, uh, they were just being minded by security companies. And as long as we behaved ourselves and had the right insurance and things like that, we were able to gain access into the stores because because of COVID, they hadn't been released or whatever. Okay. So it was a fantastic opportunity for us. And we, we made a decision. One of the things that really struck me, and I, I think it, I, I detected from your reaction to seeing the film, was that, you know, um, there was a whole thing to do with the dignity of, of, of people's lives and, you know, and being told that they, their jobs of such a long time, you know, had been ended with a, a generic email, you know, just I really wanted to try and capture that sense of what work meant to people, you know, that these were mm. these were full lives. There were families were brought up on the back of this. You know, there was a whole uh, thing of 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 dignity there. And I just kind of felt the juxtaposition of the empty store and the disembodied voices of what work meant to people. Yeah. Uh, what, you know that that was really to, that was my baseline you know as you, you as you know like i followed the the the, the story of what happened from that, that point of view of the picket line but it was really that kind of asking that those questions about well, what did work mean to you um that, that 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 struck home and was a real again using the word motivation but motivation to to try and capture this thing from that human perspective yeah. And listen, you mentioned that email. W will you just give listeners, like, if you don't mind, a potted yes. sense of what yes. actually happened? They, in essence, got an email saying, you're not working here anymore. Yeah. yeah. And then, just just so people know, they were told there would be no redundancy, which which I suppose doesn't even seem legal. But that's what happened. They got an email saying, your job is done and we're not giving you any redundancy. Exactly. Well, you see, in 2016, Debenhams had been in trouble, you know, on and off. And in 2016, with their union, they negotiated a package where they gave away a lot of pr productivity. They they agreed to far lower, far longer working hours and lower wages to keep the store open. But they got that on the back of of if. Uh, an agreement with the union and and Debenhams that if redundancies were to happen, that they would get two two weeks uh, pay per year of service, um, and they 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 would get a two week sort of uh, they'd get an additional two weeks from a statutory uh, requirement. Yeah. So they they did get their statutory requirement, but they said, well, what about the agreement we had? And they said, oh, that doesn't matter because we're liquidating the company. <laughs> So that's that's yeah. what the dispute that was what it, it hinged on that, and they just kind of said, you know, and it's very easy to understand this. They just said that this isn't fair. I mean, it wasn't fair, you know. Yeah. I mean, it might have been legal, and it, it was it was legal. I'm sure I couldn't sort of say that it wasn't legal, mm -hmm. but 
it wasn't fair and it wasn't right. And they just felt well, we have to stand up for ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and this was all happening in the backdrop of the pandemic. So, so, um, you know, it was very hard for them to get a narrative about where they found themselves out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and well, I, you film is the first time that that narrative has kind of been able to come together as something complete, you know, because yeah. it was very difficult to hear. And, and, and as I said, I had heard just snatches of this on the news and that. And um, I thought it was resolved, you know. <laughs> but yeah. What? No, I know. And and I would advise people to watch your film to, to get a sense of what happened. Just in terms of them occupying the buildings and yes. then blocking loading bays and, and refusing entry to people yes. who were basically coming in to fire sale all the stuff mm-hmm. that was still in the building, which, which may be legal, as you say, but seemed very unfair. There are some really heartfelt moments, but the, the most poignant one and and hard to watch is and i hope this is no kind of spoiler but one of the workers is being dragged out of the building and you hear this plaintive screaming voice saying that's my mother that's my mother and it's repeated six or seven times and even now when i think about it i I get the shivers how did you get your hands on that particular piece of footage we we were very lucky i mean the other uh, visual sort of element in 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 the film is is that there was a lot of social media and as you know there's a lot of social Mm. media generated around everything now yes and um, and we we went back in and and supporters and the picketers and that had had lots and lots of of uh, material it meant we had to go through hours and hours and hours and hours of material but when I saw that piece uh, fairly early on in that kind of quest to see, well, what what, what visual ma- material can we bring to bear here? You know, in a way, the whole film for me was about how did it come to that? Yeah. How did it come to that that somebody was sort of worried about their mother? You know, and the police weren't being, you know, overly rough or anything like that, you know, but that it just came to that, you know. Uh, and that concern in, in in the woman's voice. Now nobody was injured or anything like yeah. that. It, it was for me kind of I, I making the film was about trying to understand how did it come to that. Yeah, tell me this, and it we won't necessarily get into the settlement, but. As you who's been following this, and this is in the public domain, what the workers got in the end. Mm. I mean, it seems to me, but but you tell me, like the the, the final settlement seems paltry. But but yeah. what's your take on it? Yeah, I, the, that the final uh, settlement was paltry, really. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was very worried that the end of the film was going to be kind of so sad. You know that, you know that they didn't get very much like uh, uh, they got a, a, a training fund that it, you know when I asked people well what did you think about that because I asked everybody that question and they kind of said well we feel that it's really hard to get anything out of it even the, the what, what's there and we feel that we're, we're being kind of treated in some ways like we're asking for something that we're not entitled to mm. and uh, so there's massive disappointment and and sort of sadness about it but yeah you know they're a very sort of determined group of people uh, formidable sort of women and 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 they really believe and as it got towards the end of it they really felt look that the only thing that could good that could come out of this was a piece of legislation that would maybe stop this type of thing happening yeah and you know we're lucky enough to live in a democracy and hopefully you know over time that will that will happen um you know that that the legislation will this happened because it was able to happen you know yeah 
you know, you know, I believe personally that it was a sort of financial maneuver that just overlooked these, you know, any, anything it, it was possible to do this. So, you know, the settlement was a massive disappointment to them, but they were, they've, they've campaigned for legislation and they've, you know, over the time, most people have gone back to work because there's plenty of work in the economy and that, but, um, you know, a huge disappointment. So I think that that accounted for the eagerness that people felt that they wanted to tell their story. They wanted yeah. to tell the story. Um, and and that was fantastic for me to have people who were, were so kind of willing to, to, yeah. to talk about it. And the other thing, John, that I want to emphasize was that, you know, I was very, very lucky to work with, with uh, Fergus Dowd on this. I mean, we had brilliant work and relationship, but uh, the whole way through, we've had a, 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 an almost constant co- consultative process. Uh, Jane Crow and Carmel Redmond were kind of the production advisors from the women, but there was a con- constant conversation going on through social media, but also meeting up at various times during the edit where I was showing the group what I was doing, you know, yes, taking, taking their reactions to it. So I very much see it as, you know, it's not me just telling their story. It's it's it, there is a sort of a there is a lot of cooperation. Uh, sure. With, with the people in terms of making it and what the story is, because, you know, it is their story. Um, and yeah. it's really important to me that they feel that they, they have a sense of over ownership and that some it's not somebody just coming in and sort of, you know, telling the story whatever way they wanted. A lot of what you see there is is stuff that's agreed, you know. Yeah, well, you kind of uh, dovetailed into my last question there. They've seen it then, I presume. Everyone oh, yeah. was involved. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we had the most amazing night. Like, I have to also thank uh, the Dublin International Film Festival because the strategy we had to, in terms of making this was, let's try and get it, you know, let's try and qualify to get it in on time for DIFF, you know? Okay. That was, that was, the, that was the plan because everything else was happening so quickly. And... Uh, and we did, and then Diff asked us, um, "Would we would we like the film to be on as the closing film of the festival?" So we had had it playing on three screens in the lighthouse, and we had about seven hundred people at it, and we just had the best night ever. Like, and that was the majority of people there were 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 Devlin, ex Devlin workers and their families. So it was just we were just it was just brilliant, and we met Eclipse Pictures through that 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 night and they sort of said look we'd be interested in distributing it so it's kind of it's grown in that way as as um as time has gone on you know and we've had mm-hmm. a lot of interest from education institutions and stuff like that that they'd like to to to, to use it so hopefully it'll have a sort of a longer life as well yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, I hope it travels far and wide because yeah. it's a very important story. 406 Days was uh, in cinemas from last week, but it continues to be so. So do go and see it. Uh, and it was directed collaboratively yeah. by Joe Lee. Joe, thanks a million. Thank you so much, John, for having me on. Joe Lee there, the man behind 406 Days, the documentary all about the Debenhams workers. And that is still on release. It is still there. So do check it out. That is it for this week. Thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show. If you want to get in touch with me at any stage during the week, John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle. Or you can email me screentime at musetalk.com. I'll remind you that this show is available as a podcast 
every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Enjoy the weekend, enjoy the bank holiday weekend and enjoy the remaining sunshine and I will talk to you all next week.